listening to the sermon podcast of Brockport First Baptist. We are a progressive American Baptist congregation located about 20 minutes outside of Rochester, New York. To learn more about our church and support our ministries, please visit BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Today's scripture reading continues in Mark uh, chapter 14, verses 26 to 52. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though all fall away, I will not. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you this day, this very night, before the cock crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said vehemently, Even though I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all of them said the same. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took with him Peter and James and John and began to be distressed and agitated. And he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved even to death. Remain here and keep awake. And going a little farther, he threw himself on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. He said, Abba, Father, for you all things are possible. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I want, but what you want. He came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep awake one hour? Keep awake and pray that you may not come into the time of trial. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And once more he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to say to him. He came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Enough! The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. Look, my betrayer is at hand. Immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived, and with him there was a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. So when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and kissed him. Then they laid hands on him and arrested him. But one of those who stood near drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Then Jesus said to them, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as though I were a rebel? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not arrest me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. All of them deserted him and fled. A certain young man was following him, wearing nothing but a linen cloth. They caught hold of him, but he left the linen cloth and ran off naked. The word of God for the people of God. And thank you, Jim, for that reading. <clears throat> uh, before we get started today, uh, I want to thank Walter Steenson uh, for filling the pulpit last Sunday while I was away. Walter did a great job. Uh, hopefully you're here to see that. 
Um, Aaron and I were out of town. We took the kids down to Washington, D.C. for a little end-of-summer family trip. The weather really cooperated. We had a really nice time. Um, I will say, though, pro tip, don't take a four-year-old to the Smithsonian. <laughs> Just a, it's a bad idea. I, I ended up like pulling Zeke off of one of the Neanderthal mannequins, you know, because that's, that's what museums are. They're, they're just fancy playgrounds. Um, but it was, it, was, it, was a good, it was a good time. We had a great time. Um, let's see. Walter preached last Sunday on the Last Supper. Uh, today we're picking up right after that story. <clears throat> Jesus and his disciples have just finished the Passover meal, and uh, they sing some songs, and they head out to the Mount of Olives. This is really the last major act of Mark's gospel. We've been studying this book uh, together for almost a year now, if you can believe it. We started the gospel of Mark back in September um, of last year. We're almost done. We're almost there. Um, But I'm actually really excited to be able to take our time uh, going through and diving into this final part of the story. This is part of the Jesus story that, honestly, we don't talk about enough. We don't discuss Jesus' journey to the cross, his arrest, trial, and crucifixion. We rarely preach on this. Uh, Most years, if you follow the church calendar, we get the season of Lent, right, where we all get very reflective and and we fast and things like that. Um, But then that kind of comes to a head around Palm Sunday when we're like waving branches and shouting Hosanna, and then one week later, it's Easter, and we're talking about the resurrection, which means that most years, we completely skip over the story of the death of Jesus. Like, you might catch it um, if you come out to, like, a special Holy Week service, like on Maundy Thursday or Good Friday. Uh, Last year, we did um, our Illuminations of the Cross event, which we'll be doing again uh, this coming Lent. Um, But if you miss something like that, you're not going to hear the story. You might get a vague reference here or there to how, like, Jesus died to save us from our sins, but we rarely actually tell the story of Jesus' death and his final hours. So I'm really pumped for the chance to dive into this together, to really chew on it, meditate on it, and take our time working through uh, this part of the story. Another thing that I'm really excited about today, though, um, is that this passage is one of the last sandwiches that Mark makes for us. Do you guys remember the sandwiches? Does that mean anything to anyone? Um, Hopefully it does, because we've talked about this a bit. Um, Mark's gospel does this kind of funny thing. Um, where he will sandwich two stories together. You get one story, I labeled it story A, you get the first part of that, then you get a second story uh, right after it, and then on the back end, the second half, or the second corresponding part of the first story. So it goes story A, story B, story A. There were three scenes in the passage Jim just read for us. Um, The first scene is Jesus telling the disciples that they're going to abandon him. You will will all fall away. Peter is really the focal point of this scene. It's Peter who speaks up, and he's like, I'd never abandon you, Jesus. Even if all these other guys fall away, I will never deny you. That's the front end of our sandwich. Then we get a second scene where Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is that famous prayer, right, where where Jesus asks God to take this cup away. Um, We see the humanity of Jesus on display. We get a a very vivid picture of his fear facing death. That's the mid part of the sandwich. 
Then the third and final scene of this passage is the arrest of Jesus where the disciples fall away. They abandon him. They fulfill the first part. This is where Judas shows up, one of the 12 disciples, with the authorities who arrest Jesus, and the disciples scatter. Story A, story B, story A. Do we kind of see how that's working? Excellent. Um, Here's what we're going to do. This is a big passage, so we're actually going to tackle this one over the next two weeks, which means that whoever the lay reader is, next week you're going to be reading the same passage again. I think it's Kurt, so sorry, Kurt. You're going to have to read the same thing again next week. But what we're going to do is next week I want to dive into the middle part of the sandwich. I want to talk next week about this prayer and the scene of Jesus in the garden, which leaves us today to address the front and back end of this passage or as I've come to call it, a tale of two traitors. We're going to talk about Peter and Judas today, the two disciples who bookend this story. Peter and Judas both betray Jesus, but in very different ways. I want to talk about this. I want to look at both of their betrayals, kind of what's going on uh, behind it, and see if maybe we can learn anything from their bad examples. Does that sound like a plan? Excellent. Let's do it. And let's, let's start with Judas. Let's work our way backwards, because why not? He's the easy one. Let's talk about Judas for a minute. <clears throat> Judas Iscariot. How many of us are familiar with Judas? Yeah, yeah, he's, he's pretty notorious, right? He's probably one of the most famous of the 12 disciples. This guy's got to be one of the most vilified figures in history, right? His name is practically an insult, Like, no one wants to be called a Judas. His name is probably up there with, like, Benedict Arnold and, like, Jezebel in terms of, like, names you don't want to be called. Um, And what Judas does is pretty clear. He sells Jesus out. He betrays his rabbi. The religious leaders have been looking for an opportunity to quietly arrest this guy for a while, and Judas leads them right to him. Why he does it, though, is not so clear. Mark's gospel gives us almost no information about Judas. Um, The other gospels fill in some of the gaps, but there's still a lot we don't know. Luke and John both say that Judas was possessed by the devil. Um, Matthew includes the detail about the 30 pieces of silver. Judas was paid, which, by the way, is not a lot of money. Um, That's that's not a ton. Um, Matthew also tells us, about Judas's death by hanging, that Judas kills himself um, after all of this. Mark doesn't give us any of those details. In fact, this is the last mention we have of Judas in the Gospel of Mark. Mark only mentions Judas three times by name. There's here where he betrays Jesus. Uh, a bit earlier in the chapter, when we see Judas run off to make his deal with the authorities, And then way back in chapter 3, when Mark listed the 12 disciples, that's all the information Mark gives us about Judas, which isn't a lot to go on. But we can speculate, right? Like, you know, you know I'm going to give you a little something, right? We can, we, there's some speculation here. Um, Most speculation about Judas's motives in sort of like academic circles centers around his last name, Iscariot. Judas Iscariot. This raises some red flags because last names weren't really a very common thing back then. None of the other disciples 
have last names. Usually, the closest thing you'd have to a last name was like son of someone, right? Like, like Jesus on his birth certificate. It would have been like Jesus, son of Joseph. Um, Simon, son of Judah. That was usually the closest they had to a last name. Uh, your hometown could function as sort of a last name. Uh, so like Mary Magdalene means Mary from Magdala, which was a, a town back then. Um, but there's no town called Iscariot. There's no place like that that we know of. Which leaves one possibility for what this could be, and that's that maybe Iscariot is a title. This is speculative. Not, everyone, not everyone's on board with this, but in the same way that, like, Christ is a title that means Messiah, or, like, Caesar was a title that meant emperor, there are some scholars out there who think Iscariot might have been a title and it could have been a title linking Judas to a group called the Sakari. Can I hear you all say Sakari? Excellent pronunciation. It just sounds devious, doesn't it? Sakari. Um, Sakari means dagger men, and they were a group of radical Jewish assassins in the first century. These were, these were Jewish revolutionaries who would target uh, Roman soldiers, diplomats, if there was like an important, you know, official coming to town, if there was some Jewish leader that they viewed as a sellout to Rome, they would target them for assassination, usually by stabbing. That's the Sicarii, the, the dagger men. And we know Jesus has at least one revolutionary in his ranks, right? There's a guy named Simon the Zealot. Zealots were a radical political party. We also know these guys have swords, right? Some, someone loses an ear in this story. Um, so some scholars have kind of connected the dots and theorized that Judas could have had roots in this radical band of Jewish assassins. Now, if that's true, it gives us some insight into why Judas might have done this. Judas probably didn't lose the faith. In fact, if anything, in his eyes, Judas was probably a true believer. Judas was a radical who in all likelihood was looking to start some sort of a revolution. Maybe he thinks Jesus is too soft. Uh, he's had it with all this love your enemies crap, um, and he's hoping that maybe if the Romans rough Jesus up a little bit, maybe that'll take their movement in a more violent direction. Maybe they'll even kill Jesus and it'll spark some kind of war. Judas in all likelihood is a true believer who's gone rogue, and he betrays his rabbi with a kiss. If you think that's ironic, wait till you get a load of Peter. We got to talk about Peter. Poor Peter. This, this guy just never gets it, right? Like, it's, it's, Peter's a swing and a miss in every story about him. Um, unlike Judas, who we practically know nothing about, we know a lot about Peter. Peter's in every scene of this book. Um, he's one of the first disciples Jesus recruits, right? Um, Peter is part of the inner circle. Uh, he's the first person to hail Jesus as the Messiah. Of course, Jesus calls him Satan right after that, which is awkward. Um, Peter might even be the one who drew his sword to defend Jesus in the garden. We don't exactly know based on this. Mark doesn't tell us. Some of the other gospel writers are like, it was Peter. But maybe, maybe that was him. And we get this fascinating little exchange between Jesus and Peter at the start of our passage. I'm going to reread that part, uh, starting in verse 26. <clears throat> when they had sung the hymn, 
they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. little resurrection prediction there. Make sure you catch up. Peter said to Jesus, Even though all fall away, I will not. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this day, this very night, before the cock crows twice, you will deny me three times. But Peter said vehemently, Even though I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all of them said the same. Mark's really setting Peter up here. Like, it's not fair. This is not fair at all. Um, There's actually um, an old tradition from the early church that Mark was one of Peter's disciples and um, that Mark even based his account of the Jesus story on, on Peter's version of the story, which, if that's true, that relationship is fascinating because Mark makes Peter look like an idiot on, like, every other page. Um, there's, this is a total setup. Peter makes two vows here, two promises, and they're both just loaded with irony. The first promise is, I will not fall away, And the second one is, I will not deny you. Now, another way to translate, I won't fall away, is I won't fall asleep. Which he does, right? Like, in the the very next scene, uh, Jesus tells Peter three times, like, stay awake, keep watch. And he keeps falling asleep. He keeps um, falling away. Um, So that's a bit ironic. But the biggest piece of irony here is the the second one. And it's almost funny. Let's look at verse 30 and 31 one more time. This is where Peter rushes to defend himself. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this day, this very night, before the cock crows twice, you will deny me three times. But Peter said vehemently, Even though I must die with you, I will not deny you. Do you see the irony in this scene? Peter's literally denying Jesus here, right? He's like, he's contradicting him. Jesus is like, you're going to deny me. Peter's like, I'm not going to deny you. (laughs) Actually, you're going to deny me three times this very night. You're crazy. I would never do that. He's so focused on defending himself, he doesn't realize his very words are a denial of what Jesus is saying. We shouldn't be surprised that when it really counts— when the chips are down, Peter falls away. He reverts back to self-preservation, and he runs off with his tail between his legs, just like all the other disciples, and one naked guy, apparently. (laughs) I'm sorry, it's a bit of a tangent, but did you guys catch that part at the end about the naked guy running away? Um, I figure someone's going to ask, because Jim already did. Um, Jim texted me this week when he got the reading, and he's like, I have one question. What's with the naked guy? Um, Let's read that part again. Verse 51. This is from the very end of the passage. Um, A certain young man was following Jesus, wearing nothing but a linen cloth. They caught hold of him, but he left the linen cloth and ran off naked. I'm going to tell you the same thing I told Jim this past week. We have no idea what's with the naked guy or who the naked guy is. We we don't know. Um, There are all kinds of theories out there. Right? Like, maybe it was the Apostle John who was a young man. Uh, Maybe it was Jesus' little brother James, but, like, that's really out there. 
Um, there are some who theorize that it was Mark, that like Mark as a child, who would have been way younger than these guys, is just like hanging out and runs off naked. We have, we have no idea um, who this naked guy is. Personally, though, I think the point, I think the takeaway here is to show us just how scared the disciples were and just how quickly they ran away from Jesus. One guy runs off naked, right? Like, that's, that's the intensity here. This story is really a tale of 12 traitors, right? But there are two who stand out, other than the naked guy who probably stood out. Judas, who betrays his master with a kiss, and Peter, who talks a good game, but then blows it when it counts. Which is the worst betrayal? Like, they're both bad, right? Like, like neither one of these guys is much of a role model at this point in the story. But whose betrayal is worse? Which one cuts deeper, Judas or Peter? <clears throat> Peter. Oh, my gosh. You guys jumped right to Peter. Um, poor Peter. A lot of rabbis agree with you. <clears throat> a lot of rabbis, uh, both today and, and, and since, have said that Peter is the worst betrayal because betraying your rabbi is the, or sorry, denying your rabbi is the absolute worst thing you can do. Uh, disciples join themselves to their rabbi in a way that, like, we don't really have a good uh, metaphor or parallel to. They take on the identity of their rabbi. As a disciple, you are an extension of your rabbi. But in just a few hours, Peter is going to say he never even knew the guy in public three times. There's no coming back from that under most circumstances. What Judas did is bad. It's awful. But he never outright denies Jesus. He greets him. Rabbi, he greets him with a kiss. This guy kisses Jesus in public. Because remember, Judas is a true believer. He's a radical who's gone rogue. He's totally missing the point of what Jesus is all about. But Judas never denies his rabbi. Peter outright denies Jesus. And see, it's really easy to point the finger at the Judases in our world. We've been doing it for 2,000 years. The people who will praise Jesus in public, but then treat him as a means to an end, maybe as a way to, to make money, or uh, as a way to advance their political agenda. We do it all the time. We can point the finger at a number of politicians, megachurch pastors, televangelists, evangelical neighbors maybe, who we might lump under this, folks who talk a good game about loving Jesus. They kiss him in public, but then they use him to achieve money, power, authority, prestige, whatever it might be. It's easy to call that out. It's easy to point a finger at that and say, that's wrong. They're not real Christians. They're not part of our group. What's harder is calling out Peter's betrayal. Because we are all a bit like Peter. We fall asleep when we're supposed to be keeping watch. We get distracted. Uh, we talk a good game, but then we don't follow through. Uh, we hear Jesus' words, but we don't really listen. It's kind of in one ear, out the other. We don't actually, like, apply it to our lives in a way that might challenge us to change. Peter's core problem 
is that he resists his own transformation. That's what's going on in the heart of Peter. He's resisting the work that Jesus is trying to do on Peter. Jesus tries to warn him. He tries to give Peter a heads up of what's about to happen. He even mentions the resurrection, that he's going to be raised up and go to Galilee. Peter misses all of that because he's rushing to defend himself. How many of us are resisting our own transformation? There's something maybe God's doing in our lives, some way the Spirit is moving, challenging us, but we don't want to hear it. Maybe you got feedback from a mentor or a Christian friend. They uh, heard you say something that didn't sound like Jesus or saw you do something that didn't look like Jesus. How many of us just get defensive right away and put up a wall? You're crazy. I wouldn't do that. That's not really me. Sorry, Jesus. That part of my life is, is off limits. Uh, I've wrestled with this lately uh, in the area of empathy. I am not a very empathetic person, which I know is a weird thing to hear from your pastor, um, but I've, I've just never been someone who feels very deeply like that. Uh, I'm much more comfortable up here in my head than my heart. It's a lot safer up here, for me at least. Um, and I've had a number of folks point out to me lately, sort of, sort of lovingly push back, that I need to work on my empathy. Because see, as a pastor, you've got to be able to feel with people. You've got to be in it with them. Um, and this is where the pandemic, to, to be fully transparent, was pretty bad for me. Uh, it was kind of nice being a pastor online, much as I assume it was kind of nice going to church online there for a stretch, right? Like, um, you make some videos, you watch some videos, you do some Zoom calls, you send some emails. That was easy. It was great. It lasted way too long. Personally, it played into all my worst personality quirks. But lately, I've been feeling God challenging me on that, calling me to get back into it, to stretch those empathy muscles a little bit and start feeling with people again, which is scary because I'm not very good at it. And it's probably something different for you. Hopefully, um, you're not a robot like me who lives in your head all the time. Uh, maybe God is calling you to address your anger. Um, or to stop being so hypocritical. Maybe God's calling you um, to build your confidence and trust the gifts God has given you. Maybe God's calling you to have a hard conversation with a friend or a family member or to get re-engaged with community, get re-engaged with church again. Whatever it is, I really don't think God wants us to stay where we're at, to just kind of sit in neutral. I don't think that's the goal. God wants to transform us and actually make us new. And you guys, we are never going to be able to fully participate in God's transforming work in the world if we won't let God transform us. That's a mandatory first step. We've got to start with that internal work. We've got to open ourselves up to criticism and change. Otherwise, we're going to blow it when it counts. We're going to resort to self-preservation and run away with our tail between our legs, just like Peter, because it's easier. And I don't know about you, but I am sick of settling for what is easier. 
I want to be transformed. Now, as someone who spends way too much time in my head, <clears throat> one of the things I've found uh, that has helped me on this, helped me open my heart a little bit to transformation, has been spiritual practices like prayer, Bible study, and community. Um, these practices where we actually invite God, invite Scripture, invite friends, fellow Christians to speak into our lives. And if you look at the Going Deeper section in the sermon notes page today, which I have my bulletin here somewhere, um, if you look at the, got it, thank you, if you look at the Going Deeper, uh, we got something here to help you start some of that work. And I believe there are extra copies uh, of the bulletin out there you can grab on your way out. Uh, I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon, this is part of the Jesus story that we don't talk about enough. Um, so the prompt this week is encouraging you to spend some time reading Mark chapter 14 and 15. It's the story of the arrest, trial, and crucifixion of Jesus. Basically everything leading up to the resurrection. It's only two chapters. It's like four or five pages in Mark's Bible. I know you guys can do this. But what we're asking you to do is read the story of Jesus' journey to the cross in the coming days. Read it a few times. Return to it in the coming weeks, because we're going to be here for a little bit. Meditate on it, and reflect on some of these questions that we're giving you here. Take these questions to God in prayer. Go to coffee with a friend from church and talk about this. Talk about how God is maybe using this story to call us all toward transformation. Can you guys give that a shot this week? Seeing nods, yes. Okay, good. Um, let's pray to, uh, to wrap things up. God, we confess that we are all a bit like Peter. In a whole host of ways, Lord, we have resisted our own transformation. We get defensive when we hear criticism. We put up walls when the Spirit is moving us in a direction that we don't want to go. And so, Lord, we ask for the courage to open our hearts. In the coming weeks, as we meditate together over this closing act of the gospel story, Lord, may it soften us, challenge us, awaken us to new ideas and possibilities. Lord, may the story of your love poured out in Jesus open our hearts to change and to transformation. Remake us, Lord, in the image of your Son. All God's people said, Amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with us on Facebook at Brockport First Baptist, on Twitter at BrockportFB, and on our website, BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Our theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. This has been a production of Brockport First Baptist.